Welcome to the Transit Matters Podcast, episode 21. Uh, today is Tuesday, December 1st, 2015. Um, and we are joined today by Alan Levy of Pedestrian Observations Blog. And before we get into that, uh, we're going to tell you that Transit Matters advocates for fast, frequent, and reliable and effective public transit in and around Boston. It's part of our vision to repair, upgrade, and expand our transit network at the MBTA. We aim to elevate the conversation around transit issues through informed planning and critical analysis, showing why transit matters and where we go from here. I am Jeremy Mendelson. I'm a geographer, transit service planner, and a longtime Boston transportation advocate. I co-founded Transit Matters uh, because nobody else was doing it, and somebody needs to speak up for making the T everything that it can be. Hi guys, I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I work as an attorney, but in my free time, I like to indulge in my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. Um, now, now we're joined as uh, Jared or Jeremy. I'm sorry, Jeremy <laughs> uh, mentioned a second ago. We're joined by Alan Levy today of uh, uh, the Pedestrian Observations Blog. Um, I am always fascinated by Alan's blog because uh, he comes at things from a totally different standpoint. Um, now, now I'm come from political science and, and you know legal background, so a lot of times I think about you know the politics of, of how things happen and the policy. Um, Jeremy has done uh, service planning, so he thinks a lot of times about just just plain operations and and how schedules are made and, and things like this. Um, Alon has more of a mathematics background as well as you know uh, thinking along many other planes, but. I really enjoy the way he uh, brings other themes to his writing. He doesn't come from an ideological standpoint, um, whatever you know side of the spectrum you might think that is. He tends to come from you know math and thinking more about a lot of times the themes that recur in his writing. Uh, talks about how the reason that we have difficulty um, getting the transit projects that we want or the types of service that we want has more to do with uh, the politics of interagency cooperation, um, scheduling. And uh, even the vanity of politicians sometimes, uh, and then he of course gets down into uh, the nuts and bolts of, of concrete and the mathematics of scheduling. Also, um, with that, uh, Alon, I'd invite you to uh, introduce yourself and, and how, whatever you'd like to tell um, the the listeners about uh, what you enjoy doing and what you also uh, do for a living in your, in your day job. Uh, thank you, uh, Josh and uh, Jeremy, for inviting me to the podcast. Um, and thanks for the um, uh, for the kind words in the introduction. Um, so, uh, as uh, our hosts mentioned, uh, I have a math background. I'm a uh, I'm an academic research mathematician, and uh, the and right now I'm at the Royal Institute of Technology (KTH) in uh, Stockholm. And uh, previously, I held uh, positions at uh, UBC in Vancouver and uh, at uh, Brown in Providence, uh, and they, uh, and I went to uh, Columbia in New York, and, uh, um, and and before that to NUS in Singapore, and all of and all of that kind of global coverage um, taught me to maybe not always accept local assumptions about what is and is not possible and um, so, so for example one, um, one uh, common assumption in uh, North America is that uh, mainline rail is different from urban transit uh, commuter rail is separate from subways and uh, you can't run it as if it were a uh, subway and you can't um, and, and for example you can't have through service between um, subways and commuter trains and uh, usually 
and and usually when these assumptions um, have counterexamples, they are far back in history. And uh, in New York, there was through service between the Long Island Railroad and the um, Brooklyn L's uh, until the 1910s. But I mean, we can't really treat stuff that happened in 1900 as an example of how to go forward. Usually, I mean, the wages were different, the safety standards were different, um, the technology was different. Um, but, um, because, but because of my background, usually I, um, uh, think more about how other first world countries do things. And then, I mean, if I, if I say, well, this U.S. project is too expensive, but Sweden builds something for cheaper. I mean, you you can't say it's because Sweden is a poor country or because it has low labor standards. Um, so, so a lot of that is that partly because of, um, where I've lived, and partly because of my math background, I'm not really afraid of um, saying this assumption is wrong, or they do things differently in this way, or your current cost estimate is kind of weird. And so I think this is where I'm. Um, so I think this is where I'm coming from. Yeah, and I really I'm glad that you touched on some of those those items because one of the things I, one of the things I really find fascinating about your blog is you know a lot of times we will determine whether a project is good or not um, and then you know, sort of based on how people feel about how it affects their lives and then uh, we will determine whether we can fund it based on we'll just we'll, we'll get the estimate and then we'll say well can we afford it you know that kind of thing and a lot of times you bring a lot more uh, comparative analysis to the table of saying like okay maybe you want to blow hundreds of you know billions of dollars but that's absurd like like even if you can yeah. like you could do it for half that you know so i always find that you know extremely eye-opening as well as you know you, you mentioned you know labor costs and and that's always a big issue here and and i think you know we have two things here when we have you know i think pro-labor people who just say you know this is this is what it costs or you know kind of always are apologetic um for, for you know labor costs um and then we also have people who are sort of business, you know, MBA types with spreadsheets um, that are always trying to figure out how to cut, maybe cut a corner. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there's obviously pluses and minuses to both sides. And I find that you approach labor costs uh, particularly as well as other items from a little different standpoint. Like I, I was looking at a blog and I can't remember which, which topic it was exactly um, when I was going through uh, your site again last week. And, and you were talking about, you know, just what are realistic labor costs and how do you account for them and how can you still run your operations factoring that in, sort of saying, like, labor may not be the reason that your operations are expensive. You know, it, it may be certainly a factor of it, and here's how we can realistically account for, you know, the labor costs, but there's other ways. I think that... it's... Go ahead. I think, I think it's the post about the LRR cost breakdown, maybe? Yes, that rings a bell, yeah. Okay. Um, so, like, the... so, I mean, in that post, what I am trying to argue is that the LRR does have a big labor cost uh, problem, specifically with the conductors. The practice on uh, commuter trains uh, in nearly all of the U.S., and I say nearly all because um, it's somewhat different at um, uh, Metrolink and, uh, sort of, and like pretend different at Caltrain, um, but normally the practice is... Um, you buy a ticket and then come conductors walk across the entire train and collect everyone's tickets or check everyone's tickets. And um, this requires multiple people, especially at a rush hour when the trains are very busy. 
Um, and the, the result is that um, one train may run with, let's say, uh, five or six staff members on board, one driver and four or five conductors. And, um, the, and the problem with this is that's, I mean, all of these people have to get paid. You have, you're paying for five or six uh, people where normally um, when you have um, um, regional trains um, in other developed countries, well, not in Canada, but in a bunch of European countries and in Japan, they usually have uh, one or two employees on board. There's a driver and there may or may not be a single conductor. It depends on the country. Um, and um, the problem is that the pro- so you, so you mentioned the labor people and the MB- and the MBA type people, and obviously the labor people are not going to let you just say nope, we're cutting this entire job category or we're changing it completely. Um, and um, and the and the other issue I'm, I'm talking about is um, labor productivity per driver. And the LIRR, get, I don't actually have very good statistics about it. I only have for a couple of places. So the LIRR in the New York City subway get 500 revenue hours per year per train operator. Um, now, a full-time job is uh, 2,000 or so, and I can already see um, people yelling that, you know, uh, four people are doing the job of one. So not exactly. I don't actually know of anywhere where you have a driver driving a train 2,000 years, uh, 2,000 hours a year. But in, uh, in London, at the London Underground, uh, it's 720. And the um, and the work weeks are shorter. It's 36 hours because a train operator on the London Underground is a senior high-paid position. And in uh, Helsinki, um, it's uh, 867 hours per year per um, train operator. And I think at least and at least part of it, I think, comes from um, the scheduling because um, the commuter trains in the US are very peaky. There's uh, there are a lot of trains at the peak, and then it might go down to hourly service off peak. Um, and even on the subway, where it's not like that, you still have um, train. You still have certain services that only run rush hour, and you have sometimes a factor of two difference even on the other services between um, peak and off peak service. And in um, and in London, um, the peak, there there is a peak, there is such a thing as rush hour, but it's weaker. Um, my recollection is that uh, busier lines might try in uh, 30 trains an hour at the peak and 18 off-peak, so it's a little less than 2 to 1, and in Helsinki there's no peak. I mean, there's rush hour at Helsinki, but the train frequency is the same all day, right? every day. And you know, I think that, um, um, I think that on our heavy rail lines and the green line, we're seeing yeah. that there's less and less of a, uh, a rush of a, hour of a as far as passenger crowding goes. You know, I mean, um, they. It doesn't really matter what time of day you get on the trains; they're probably crowded. And I'm sure a portion of that is due yeah. to less frequency at certain times of day. Um, but when it comes to labor, like we're finding that yeah. where you're offering the service, we're having less of a peak, um, less of peak crowding. Basically, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Ah, uh, so the um, so it's so that's a matter of crowding, and more a matter of uh, frequency. Because I mean, the train driver gets paid regardless of whether the train is empty or overfull. And um, and the MBTA, my recollection is that it doesn't have a very peaky schedule on the subway. Like maybe the red line, I think every branch comes every uh, nine minutes peak and thirteen minutes off peak, if I remember correctly. 
But I also. Is the red line that bad? But I it also, was better than that. It's two branches. So it's, oh, there's right. Two it's, two bran- right. it's two branches. Right. Um, and, um, so, and as a caveat, I do not know the MBTA's labor productivity. I do not know how. So I, I can find how many uh, service hours they get, but I have no idea how many train drivers they're employing. For all I know, there are paradigm efficiency there. Yeah. Well, that'll be. Um, we can probably talk about that a little bit more when, we, when, we, when I want to bring um, you back to some discussions yeah. about whether or not sure. the MBTA um, different services are at capacity yeah. and what can be done, because I know you've written a lot about that. Yeah. Um, I did want to give you a uh-huh. chance. Uh, the Hyperloop has, again, been resurrected in, a, in the uh, public uh, consciousness. Sorry, before we... Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, before we go there. I mean, I don't want to go there, but just want to say one more thing uh-huh. about the labor productivity issue. I think that's, like, one of the issues with um, 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 right-wing business types. So the labor is obviously not going to give anything for free, even if you're saying we're not laying off a- a- anyone, we're just going to use the same amount of labor for more hours. I mean, they, they're going to squeeze more, they're going to squeeze um, higher wages out of it. And the flip side is that if you look at, so I don't know to what extent it exists in Boston, but in New York you have the Manhattan Institute, where they're basically not touching anything about staffing levels in the country. You have, uh, you have um, Nicole um, Gelinas, who um, says that if people, if the wages were lower, it would be much easier to have more staffing, more station agents um, to keep the conductors. So it's much easier to just call for wage cuts or for weakening the unions than to um, figure out which jobs are required and which are redundant. And I think this is where um, uh, conservative reforms um, end up missing the mark, even when the problem is labor. I think there's also a history there as well of, you know, just like there's the mistrust with communities, you know, when you propose a project and it's almost always, yeah. you know, a cut or something. It's sort of the same history with the unions. It's like anytime somebody wants to change anything, yeah. it's always been negative and we got to kind of... Oh, yeah, that. exactly. Oh, exactly. I mean, I mean, the unions in the U.S. have been on, have been in decline since like what um, since like right after World War Two. So like sixty-five um, or so years. And I mean, any, I mean, I mean, they're not going to believe they're not going to trust any change unless it's it comes from within the union movement. Well, um, if you if you want to uh, take the bait here, you know the Hyperloop has uh, been again yeah. in the news uh, with a few op-eds yes. this weekend, um, and they're I guess beginning their first um, what do you want to call it like feasibility study of trying to build a section of Hyperloop test track right yeah. in, in in the Central Valley, I believe, yes. uh, in, in California. So um, you've, you've yes. written some fascinating posts, not just on the mechanics and the operational viability of. The Hyperloop, but also on our willingness in America to embrace uh, a visionary entrepreneur and whatever uh, ideas that that person, uh, usually a he, might throw out there as being, um, yeah. you know, more trustworthy than what maybe uh, industry experts, you know, might be might be telling us or prescribing that we need to do to reform or invest yeah. in our system. So, you know, what what are you thinking right now with with some of the recent? Um, um, ideas that are floating out there about the Hyperloop, some of, some of the hype, and also what, what we know from what's been proposed in the past. So what we know is that a lot of these proposals can actually work. Like sometimes I'm being quoted as someone who does not think Hyperloop is feasible, and I, th- I mean, I think they're going to face a lot of technical difficulties, but I think that they're solvable given more money. The problem is there's civil infrastructure there. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the news because um, there's a uh, news item about a new uh, test track that they're building um, in, uh, somewhere near I-5 where they're getting free land for it. And uh, the construction costs I, – so I do not remember the cost or the length, but I remember the cost per unit length. It's uh, $45 million per kilometer. Um, and this is more expensive than California high-speed rail. I mean, the cost of California high-speed rail um, in the Central Valley so far is about, uh, if I remember correctly, about 25 to $27 million per kilometer, not including uh, systems and electrification, but systems and electrification at low single digits each. So, um, so based on this this test track, which I don't I don't know. I heard I saw you um, exchanging comments with with someone on Twitter yesterday who was claiming that well yeah. the price will go down after we have the first test track out of the way. Yeah, and that's does, false. Is that okay? So you say that's false. So what it seems to me is that um, one of the one of the arguments you made early on was that okay, it's technically feasible, although there are a lot of obstacles to be overcome. But the the main yeah. issue you seem to have was that Elon Musk was overselling. Um, exactly. the viability as far as capacity versus uh, high-speed rail and the viability versus price being advertised. As, as, exactly. as One example being if the capacity is actually much lower because of the type of technology, I don't know if that can be overcome, maybe you've decided differently now. If the capacity is much lower um, and the price, even if the price is lower, like that doesn't really help us, you know, because, and also frequency was an issue because of the size of the pods. Um, the other thing that you had brought up was that the claim about how it could follow the um, Interstate 5 corridor uh, without having to acquire new land. And you had gone through and proved out mathematically that like, the turning radius is required could not actually follow directly in the median of I-5. You know, are those, are those uh, still yeah. challenges that you think are overcomable, or do you think that is kind of the, cru- the crux of the issue? Um, so, these are ch- so, I mean... You, yes, you can overcome them, but at much higher expense. Now, the the capacity. I do not know whether they're building, whether the test track that they're building is built to um, Musk's specs, which um, call for very narrow uh, tubes, so that um, seating would be two across and small pods. Um, whereas trains have learned to go the exact opposite direction: wider trains um, and longer trains. And in fact. Um, uh, it's common when you're building an entirely separate high, uh, high-speed system to build it wider than um, the conventional rail. So in um, in Japan, the width of so so in Japan the um, bullet trains go on a completely are completely separated from the conventional system because the conventional system is narrow gauge, and the bullet trains are standard gauge. Um, so they were never going to share tracks anyway. So they're built to. A, to much more generous specs, the train, the bullet trains in Japan are, are more than a foot wider than the um, than the legacy trains, and in uh, and, and elsewhere usually they build them compatible because of it's the same gauge. But in Shanghai, the maglev train is also um, wider than the um, conventional rail, as far as I remember. So it sounds and, like what we're saying is basically, you know, for for X amount invested, you're going to get a lot more. Um, capacity and usefulness basically out of the high-speed rail um, and even if you could build yes. the Hyperloop much more cheaply which is very doubtful it would not be nearly as useful anyway exactly and I think and I think one of the 
and and one of the problems with with a concept is and 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 again this is something that they can change you can build a hyperloop with a wider diameter um and i think and i mean the the costs are not going to be very different honestly the civil infrastructure is largely the same and i think this is where and and i think this is why people thought that they could build it for much cheaply I mean, they think, okay, well, we're it's a narrower system. It's actually in Musk's um, dock. Um, the tunnels are narrower, so um, he thinks so. He thinks that they can build a, uh, a, a tunnels from um, across uh, Tahoe Pass between uh, L.A. and um, and the Central Valley for cheaper than California high-speed rail. But no, you can't. I mean, tunnels. So the actual work of digging the tunnel scales with diameter so if your diameter is three times as much for three times as much uh, width and capacity you're spending three times as much you're not spending nine times as much and the second thing is there's a lot of geotechnical work in digging a tunnel um, and uh, you, you need to figure out you need to make sure that you're uh, not I mean it's California there are earthquakes you need to make sure that you're not crossing active faults in a tunnel because if there's an earthquake and there's a train inside Congratulations, you've killed everyone on board. And um, also, and if there's no train inside, well, you've still wrecked your line and it'll take forever to rebuild it. As, as far as the ge- uh, geophysical but also geographical complications, whereas in the Northeast we have very curvy traditional or uh, legacy coastline type yeah. tracks, in California, yes. although the Central Valley can be straight and, and long, the, yes. they have some very complicated mountain passes to get exactly. in and out of LA and, this- and the Bay Area. Exactly, and this is something that, and this is something that that California High Speed Rail is actually globally unique in how far in uh, how big Tahoe. So, Al- so Altamont and Pacheco passes are not a big deal um, comparatively, but um, Tehachapi or Tahoe, um, these are um, high speed trains are going to go farther up than any um, uh, high speed rail line in the world um, right now. Um, even in mountainous areas, like in so uh, Korea is very mountainous. They just drill straight through the uh, mountains. Whereas in California, those mountains are much taller, so they're going to have to still end up having uh, uh, trains that crest. Well, under the Tehachapi option, I think they're going to have to crest more than a kilometer above sea level. Um, and so it, you're getting issues with uh, uh, long grades. You're getting issues with. Uh, long tunnels for which you need to do a lot of preparatory work. And this is going to happen no matter what kind of technology you're using. Um, And actually going so fast that you go at hyperloop speeds, that makes things harder because, um, as as, as you mentioned before, I talked in my my post about turn radius. Uh, The radius of a curve that you need in order to turn uh, at the equivalent level of um, centrifugal force felt by passengers uh, that um, radius scales as the square of your speed. Um, and at uh, full high-speed rail speed, which is uh, about nowadays about maybe 350 kilometers an hour, about 220 miles an hour, that's already a pretty hefty radius. It's measure it's like several kilometers or several miles, um, and it, it dips even into the double digits. Um, if you want to uh, build, if you want, if you have a lot of space, and if you want to possibly allow for further um, speed increases. As you go into hyperloop speeds, we're talking um, high tens of kilometers, high tens of miles. Um, and vertical radius is actually worse because you can't uh, tilt the train. Um, 
So I mean, it's, so it sounds to me like I mean this this is it sounds to me more like a like a fantasy, and maybe I'm reading this wrong. Well, maybe, maybe it's gonna, maybe it's going to be a really expensive toy type of travel for really rich people. I don't know. Perhaps not, I, I think the PRT is yeah. kind of a similar thing. I mean, when I hear about the you know this this per, these pods that have been you know proposed the more traditional PRT that I, that I hear about um, all the time, and it's it's sort of like it strikes me as like trying to fit like a car to a public transit system and just like not really yeah. understanding how any of this stuff works. Yeah, exactly, and and I think this is what Musk might have actually been thinking um, that it's going to be a premium thing for business travelers. I mean, Amtrak things it's. High-speed rail is going to be only for premium business travelers, um, and the problem is, who the hell builds this much infrastructure just for first-class travel? I mean, for, I mean, if you look at planes, the I mean, occasionally you'll see all business class or all first class, um, or sorry, rather all business and first class um, uh, uh, planes um, going. Um, usually, it's transatlantic. Right. But it's not common, and usually these are not very profitable. Um, so, for so so one example that I know of, um, the longest flight in the world for a spell was a direct flight between Singapore and uh, Newark. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 19 hours. I flew on it uh, once, but went back when it was still all class. But even then, they had to charge premium. So I think even economy was premium economy. Mm-hmm. And th- even and then they couldn't um, make money at economy rate uh, at economy fair, so they decided to make it all business class and first class, and all premium. And even then, I don't think they could make money. Like they ended up, they ended up folding. Um, so somehow, I mean somehow, and I mean with trains, I mean it's not very common to have all premium infrastructure. I mean if you want, if you're building this much infrastructure, you're going to use it as widely as possible so that means yes you're going to have premium service for people paying premium fare but you're going to also fill it with people paying normal fare like like a coach or economy or whatever you want to call it well let's um i want to ask you i do want to ask you one more technical question about hyperloop before we get to the northeast um region um so just so, so I understand, with the hyperloop. So when you, when you're building train tracks like like the the HSR that they're building in California, you know they could have express yes. trains and they could have local trains and and they could yes. um, they could have um, regional tra- just just like the Northeast Quarter, you could have regional trains and a cell running on the same track, that kind of thing. The hyperloop yeah. can it make local stops or is it simply hub to hub? The plan. So the way they're planning it is just Los Angeles to San Francisco. Um, and if you're going on I-5, there's really nothing in the middle to stop at anyway, um, so as opposed to like trying to serve. Would it be possible but, to stop at Bakersfield? I mean, they would need to change the route for it. But um, so the system as designed, I don't think it can do that. Okay. I'm pretty so there do exist there do exist ways to make. It. I mean, it has to have at least some way of. Um, uh, switching, like I think, from what I saw in the um, renderings and the the test track, might have some switching capability. But there do exist faster than high speed rail things that can switch. Maglev can switch, um, but I don't think they were they're very concerned about that again because their alignment misses everything between Los Angeles and San Francisco, um, and um, the and the um 
and and of the and of the service plan they're thinking of they're thinking about very high frequency and very small pods that also can't happen you need i mean uh, in um in Japan, for example, there are local and express high speed trains uh so maybe they come every like ten minutes each and they have um timed uh overtakes at local stations um and they do it because they are really punctual and because um um and because these are pretty major cities in the middle, but still cities that are much smaller than Tokyo and Osaka. In, in California, I don't think they're thinking in these terms, which is why they, they never really planned on it. Yeah. So like, so the, the system as currently planned can't do it, and I think it's more the um, frequency than the switching, but um, there, there could possibly exist faster than high-speed rail things that... Um, that can switch. That yeah. can have. That can switch from local to express tracks. Well, I think that in the in the American political climate, you know, if they were going to have, so if, if they could feasibly uh, get what what would be operationally sufficient to actually run down the middle of the I five corridor that would not require any additional right of way takings, then maybe hub to hub would be politically you know um, palatable. But you know, if if you get into any type of required takings or any land or greenfield. Um, right of way. It seems like the, the the people whose land you're passing through are going to want some type of amenity for themselves also, and then they run into the same issues that high speed rail has in California. Um, so actually, so um, I'm gonna and I'm gonna talk about it again with Northeast Carter. I don't think the land uh, takings are that big of a deal. Honestly, the problem with the median is that yes, it's straight, but it's not straight and it's not straight enough. And generally, generally it's uncommon. Like, I don't think it actually ever happens outside the US that people plan to run high speed trains in medians because medians are constrained. Um, so instead they're, um, they usually run alongside the highway. Um, so if the highway has a little curve and the train can take the curve slightly differently because trains, because high speed trains have much High-speed trains going at 220 miles an hour have much wider turning radius than cars going 70 miles an hour. Um, and hype, and Hyperloop also is going to have to deal with vertical turns because the Central Valley is flat, but it's not flat enough for um, uh, for trains at that speed. So they're going to have a lot of uh, curves just for um, changing uh, elevation. Um, and um, And the... For California high-speed rail, actually, one of the problems um, with the planning is that they decided that they tried using um, existing rights-of-way um, in the Central Valley, and this forces them to build elevated tracks through um, through um, Bakersfield, um, whereas they could go around it, maybe. And yes, that would require property takings, but... Um, it's Central Valley land. In fact, it's Southern Central Valley land. It's also poor farmland. It doesn't cost that much to take it. <laughs> I see where you're going with that. Well, um, <laughs> um, let's let's go ahead and since we're talking about high speed sure. rail, switch over to the Northeast Corridor. And I know that you okay. had a lot of thoughts about the most recent um, Northeastern Corridor. What's it? NEC future cost estimates for high speed rail. Um, that yes. was shocking me at the price tag. Um, so yeah. uh, let's let's briefly talk about that, and then and then we'll move on to more local uh, items. So yeah, what what were your? Can you give give an overview of some of your thoughts about those new estimates? Sure. So um, 
the so from when I first saw the fifty billion estimate from Penn Design that might have been in like two thousand ten, that I thought was shocking. Um, and then Amtrak had one hundred, and I and I actually thought NEC future might be in the same ballpark because um, I figured well Amtrak already made its plans and its uh, and uh, its tunnel heavy alignments. Um, and um, NEC Future, when I first saw the plans before the costs in, uh, I think, August, I actually kind of liked them. Like, they had a lot of problems, but I, I liked their lowest option, option um, alternative uh, one, the one that only builds a few bypasses, because a few bypasses is how the Northeast Corridor should be treated. You, you take a segment which is very curvy and you bypass it and then you run trains on the existing tracks on the less curvy segments um, and maybe sometimes you even stick with mildly curvy things maybe places where you can't go 220 miles an hour but places where you can go 120 for um, for a while because maybe it's too expensive or isn't worth the cost to try to um, make that faster and then I saw the cost estimates and even alternative one it's multiple tens of billions. It might be, I think, 40 or 50, I'm quoting from Amory. But then the full high-speed build, it's it's arranged, and their headline figure is 220 billion. Eh, sorry, 290 billion. Um, and this is... And again, I'm going to switch to kilometers because I just remember costs per kilometer. This is about $400 million per, um, uh, per kilometer. The, in, so in Japan, they're building a maglev train between Tokyo and Osaka um, at a speed of uh, 500 kilometers an hour, 311 miles an hour. Um, it's meant to uh, relieve the conventional high-speed uh, trains which are at capacity because too many people ride them. The cost of that um, maglev, which is, I should add, about 70% underground because it has to go under the entire Tokyo um, urban area and under uh, the entire Nagoya and Osaka urban areas and across the mountains, the cost of that is about $200 million per kilometer. So Amtrak is proposing a conventional high-speed rail line at twice the cost of a maglev. And Amtrak's, and I shouldn't say Amtrak, I mean, the NEC Future lead agency is the FRA, I believe, but... Um, Amtrak, but I mean, Amtrak's previous plans were also incredibly expensive. Now, now to be fair, so. that that figure you just quoted—the four hundred um, million per kilometer—now yeah. doesn't that include more than just high-speed rail? Yes, but so it includes so it includes the Gateway Tunnel, um, and it includes a lot of projects that. So it, so it includes certain kinds of um, track um, capacity projects, um, but the bulk of the 290 is high-speed rail. I mean, Gateway, I think it's 20. Okay. Um, and um, and the rest... So, for example, the, um, they have plans to build a... Uh, uh, to build uh, an entirely new... So, so, so the tunnels um, west of Baltimore uh, are terrible. They are very slow because of curves. They have very high maintenance costs. Um, and um, as a result, there are plans to uh, bypass them, to build new tunnels. Um, and this gets to, and this gets bundled into high-speed rail, um, even, though it's, even though the speed gain is maybe two minutes. Um, and it's fine. I mean, it's a legitimate project. It increases capacity if you let the old train, if you let the commuter trains use the old tunnels or something. 
Um, and the original cost estimate, I think maybe 10 years ago, was 750 million, which for how long the tunnel is is completely reasonable for the record. Um, but um, they decided to like build even bigger tunnels for freight, and they just, and they want to completely shut down the old tunnels. And they think there might even be plans to, uh, or at least it's an option to not even use Baltimore Penn Station, but to build an entirely new underground station uh, more centrally. Um, Baltimore Penn Station is not in the middle of central uh, of the of downtown Baltimore. It's like a little bit farther north. So they're trying to build a new one, and they're doing the same thing in Philly. They're building uh, an entirely new underground station in Center City and not 30th Street Station, which is right outside. Mm -hmm. These are long tunnels, and they're adding a lot to the cost. So in Baltimore's case, it's, I think, $4 billion, which is $4 billion, which is like $3 billion too much. But in Philadelphia, I'm trying to remember how much the Philadelphia tunnels are, cost, uh, are, are, are estimated at, but it's, it's double digits billions, as far as I remember. Maybe uh, $13 billion? Don't quote me on that. I'm quoting from memory, but Baltimore is four. Baltimore, I remember, is four. Well, this makes our um, north-south rail link estimates seem downright, you know, yes. thrifty. I think by comparison. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, no, I mean, no, north-south rail link is. I mean, no per unit length, the north-south rail link is way more expensive. I mean, Philly, it's, it's not going under all of Philadelphia. This is why. It's, so it's like maybe thirty kilometers or something of of subway. And north-south rail link, it's. I think it's like two kilometers from South Station to North Station with approaches that would still have to be underground. We're talking four or five. It's a small... I mean, North-South Rail Link, I mean, should cost two billion for four tracks. I mean, yeah, Just like, the tunnels, not extra stuff like electrifying <coughs> the entire MBTA system. But the, the tunnels themselves would be two, maybe three billion. So, I mean, here's my question. I mean, you know, we, we often get it very deep into, into the costs of, of things. And I think one yeah. of the things that, that I, you know, we just had dealt with the, the Green Line extension. Uh, you know, we're, we're still dealing with that that debacle. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, we hear, we always hear, I think one of my frustrations is we hear, oh, oh, that's too much. And, you know, my, my first response is, says who? But but also, yeah. you know, like when we get into the issues of, of high cost, I mean, what what are we talking about? Why why are these things costing so much, and 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 are they costing so much? Like, um, so they are so they are costing a lot uh, per unit length. The Green Line extension, um, the latest cost est estimate I've heard is two point five through three billion, mm -hmm. which per unit length um, is uh, almost a about. <laughs> Yeah. It's about four hundred million dollars per kilometer, same as the high speed rail. And four hundred million four hundred million per kilometer, four hundred million dollars per kilometer, it's fine. I mean it's kind of on the expensive side if you're building a fully underground subway. Now the green line is above ground. It's I mean not above, it's in a uh, it's in an open cut, but it's not a tunnel. Mm -hmm. And the um northeast uh and the NEC future plan it has a lot of tunneling, a lot of unnecessary tunneling, but even then, my recollection is that the majority of it is not in a tunnel. So we're talking um, about we're talking about costs comparable to high speed rail, expensive high speed rail. And I think the question um, when we, you know, Jeremy, I, when like, we I wouldn't about, even go ahead. Like I wouldn't even compare it to high speed rail because high speed high speed train costs are kind of weird because it's I mean they're usually much cheaper. Um, like usually, I mean, usually if you're building above ground, it should cost what California is paying, like maybe 30 million per kilometer. Um, for the record, the MBTA South Coast Rail um, extension, it's um, 
not high-speed rail, it's not electrified, it might even be single track, 30 million per kilometer. But that's just their huge cost overruns. And the Green Line extension, it's 400, whereas for light rail, I mean, it should be an order of magnitude less than that. So this is, but this is, but this is per unit. Sorry. Sorry, I mean, I guess what I was asking, what I'm asking is, what's what's frustrating for me is, what, why are these things costing so much and are there things that we can do to try to get the costs down uh you know versus what they're costing in in other places uh or you know is that just are there there things that are that are beyond our control i mean probably i mean american workers aren't you know one-tenth as productive as european workers um i mean there might be very narrow cases in which they are but even then i doubt even then i doubt it and those very narrow cases are things like they're using antiquated methods that can be improved. Can um, you clarify that a little but, bit? Because I know, I'm sure there's a lot of people like saying that, you know, like they get more vacation in Europe and, you know, like what, what do you mean when you say Yeah, no, they get, for, they get way more vacation days in Europe. It's, it's, when I say more productive, um, there was a, there, I know a single factoid about this due to um, the head of MTA Capital Construction in New York, uh, Mikhail Hordnichanu. Uh, who said that um, there's a certain task involving a tunnel boring machine where in New York they're using 24 um, workers for that task and in Madrid they're using 9. So that's about a factor of 3 difference and I will tell you that the difference in tunneling cost between New York and Madrid is a factor of 30 rather than a factor of 3. So it's... It explains part of it but a lot of it is... um, So there's a lot of agency turf wars um, like I would tell you that they shouldn't even have built the Green Line extension. They should have um, four-tracked the low line as commuter rail and built um, infill stations on the low line and like electrified it um, to North Station. And um, the but there are these turf wars between um, commuter. It, it, usually, it's interagency, but the MBTA it's all the same agency, and they still have turf wars between um, <laughs> commuter rail and. Uh, and um, and the subway and the bus system. I mean, you are paying separate fares. I mean, Charlie ticket, I think, is uh, giving you a free transfer, but you can't pay with a Charlie card on the commuter trains. And you um, and uh, if you're going through Zone One, not Zone One A, like if you're going to Hyde Park and not Forest Hills on the Providence on the um, uh, on the uh, Providence line or um, the or the Needham line. Um, if you're, I mean, you're paying separate fare. You're paying more if you're going by commuter train than if you're going by subway bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big problem. And that uh, and and, that, and that's a, and that's like a big thing for transit users. Forget costs for a moment. Like even in terms of benefits. I mean, there are, there are real benefits to transit riders if um, it were, if it was treated as a single system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to slag too much. Um, that's sad because I do not know that the cost overruns on the Green Line extension are um, because of commuter rail um, issues. Um, so my understanding is that they had to um, do a lot of um, over a lot of bridge modification, um, the overpasses over the line, and um, and there was and, and there was something where they had a lot where they had to do a lot of redesigns. Um, and and again, this is not something that I'm one hundred percent sure about, but my recollection is. The, they redesigned the bridges um, before they planned on the GLX, or rather when they knew they had to build the GLX but didn't yet have funding for it. So they essentially had to um, rebuild the 
over the the overpass bridges twice as opposed to once. Um, and um, and they've had a lot, and they've had issues with uh, widening the right of way. But again, these are these are the sorts of issues that crop up often. So I can't tell you specifically why they're think why this happens to be more expensive. Um, than elsewhere. It could just be that the people or that the contractors are um, incompetent or something. It's something that happens a lot in New York. In New York the, they have uh, lowest bid mm-hmm. they have rules forcing the agency to pick the lowest bid. Yeah, we have that too. I, mean, I think there's a lot, yeah. of, uh, you know, a lot of shady behavior going on in the part exactly. of the contract, but I can't prove it. But you proposed, you proposed an interesting alternative where you, know, you talked about the four-tracking, electrifying the commuter um, the yeah. original rail route, which would, and then that would have allowed cross-platform transfers to the orange and the green yes. lines at um, North Station, and would have also complemented the Wait, what, later what, investment in North South Railway. I mean, you're not going to get, you're not getting cross-platform transfers if it's commuter rail. You're not getting cross-platform transfers to the orange and green line. You're getting transfers with a lot of. Actually, the, the North Station um, transfer between the commuter rail and the orange and green line is kind of shitty. Like, it is now. I guess I'm thinking like if, if in the future yeah. when you have uh, when you would have yeah. had an underground um, tunneled station due to North South Railway. I guess it would still be. It wouldn't be technically cross. No, it would not. It, it's, there's no way to make it cross platform. I mean, you, there's a way at least to make it all indoors as opposed right. to now when that's what I'm, that's what you I have mean. to walk I'm, outdoors. Yeah. But right, but like the lowest bid rules. Um, so in New York, at least, the issue is yes, they've been burned by contractors in the past. So what they do is they overspecify to make sure they don't get burned again. But, I mean, you can't overspecify everything. I mean, so they have more and more and more and more requirements, and it gets to the point that they're telling contractors what materials to use. So the contra- so if there's a small if there's a small change that is required, which is always which always happens. I mean, you discover that there was some um, some unmarked um, utility line. You discover that the soil is hair different from what you thought um things always come up um and um and in uh, spain actually one of the ways they keep their costs so low is they in they have they specify costs per unit rather than as a lump sum as the result if small changes are required there's already a known cost schedule for them whereas in the us they get litigated um, and usually once you've already paid the initial cost, the contractor knows that they can overcharge because, I mean, you thought that, for that, let's say, half a billion dollars was a good investment on the line. You've spent half a billion dollars. You've proven to the contractors that you'll spend another half a billion dollar on the line. And so there's that kind of shady behavior. And beyond that, when they're specifying things down to the materials required, First, it re- reduces flexibility, so um, it doesn't allow changes that would make things more cost-effective. And second, who the hell wants to deal with that? Like seriously, every construction contractor who is competent enough to get private sector and uh, to get private sector work gets private sector work. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, it's time to just bring this stuff in house because, and you see this with the Green Line extension. You know, the yeah, you know, it's, it's going up and up, and we talk about how the MBTA only had four people trying to oversee the project. You know, this huge yeah. team, and they had multiple contractors, and and it's like you know, yeah. at some point, if you just bring it in house, and somebody is you know at some level accountable to the governor, and then you know maybe maybe that is helpful. It could work. I mean, it could work. Um, and in so in in Madrid, like one of the things they do is they um do not use consultants. 
Um, they do the planning in house, and it's a small in house team, but they do the planning in house, and then they outsource, and then they have design contractors, and then they have separate build contractors just to avoid um, designers um, creating work for the builders. And they, um, and um, and the problem is, if you're outsourcing things to contract to consultants, the consultants have a fiduciary duty to their employer, who has a fiduciary duty to shareholders. Um, the, and and the, and the second thing is, I mean, how many design firms are there that can do it, or how many like, or if you're doing a general contractor, how many people are going to bid? Like in New York, you have one bid contracts. You have Skanska mm-hmm. being the only bidder in some cases. So that's, yes, getting, that's over- getting to the issue of in America, we don't have as much competency in this kind of infrastructure projects because we haven't been doing exactly. as many of them. No, the, so actually in New York, they've been doing a lot. Like in New York, they've been doing Water Tunnel Three. That's actually one of the problems. The um, they still have the Sandhog Union, and like other American cities, they stopped building subways, so they laid them off decades ago. In New York, they're still around. They're still working with the productivity of 60, 70 years ago. They're making wages of 2015. This is a huge problem in New York, and again, it's not the only thing. I mean, you're not getting to a factor of let's say 10 cost differences between New York and what I would say is the first world average. Um, between Boston and the first world average by just one thing, but it's it's one of the things, and and yes, the fact that you have um, that you have a um, bidding system that you have a that you have a bid uh, award system that turns off everyone who is actually good, that's the other problem. In 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 New York, Second Avenue subway is really expensive, but. There were certain contracts at the peak of the recession that went under budget by a factor of two. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the project overall went like maybe 30% above budget, but there were certain contracts that went under budget by a factor of two because in the recession, the construction just shut down. So suddenly, so the, you still had other problems with like um, o- with like um, materials that may, not, that may not be optimal and with... Um, uh, and with a designer and with over design, but you but suddenly the good contractors were bidding, um, so they bid much lower. I mean, they're good contractors under lowest. I mean, the good contractors, I mean, they're not going to give you premium stuff for premium price. They're going to give you solid. They're going to give you professional work for professional prices. It's just they're not really interested in bidding on contracts that like constantly breathe down their neck about. Um, what materials to use? Yeah, who would, right? So um, <laughs> exactly. Well, so I think who in the would? Of time, People who can't get other contracts. I think in the interest of time, we'll um, transfer sure. back to the MBTA and specifically, you know, issues with yeah, sure. our, our 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 heavy rail uh, and also the green line, oh, yeah. light rail, and commute, commuter rail. And one of the things when I was reviewing um, some of your posts um, over the weekend, you made an assertion that. There's really no need to pour more concrete as far as by that you mean, you know, build new subway um, in Boston because our current uh, subway system is under capacity. And I thought, wow, that's a that's a pretty ballsy assertion because I think most people who are riding the trains in Boston, uh, the, the, yeah. the subway, the green line and the other subways would say, maybe ex- maybe with the exception of the blue line, would say, what do you mean we're under capacity? It doesn't matter when I get on the train, it seems like we're, I'm having to stand, exactly. you know? So, but I, I yeah. think you mean more than just how many people are in the train. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean by we're under capacity? Yes. Yes. Uh, so the first thing I want to um, say is that there, 
is that for the subway, there is one concrete-based project that should be built, and that's the red-blue um, connector. The problem is the costs. The costs are very high, but that's because it was sandbagged. Um, my understanding is um, the previous mayor, Menino, didn't want it, so the cost estimates magically tripled. Um, but that's a tiny project. That's a few hundred meters worth of tunnel. Um, but for the other projects, the issue is with, with capacity, there's this Swiss slogan, electronics before concrete, or sometimes um, or sometimes organization before electronics, before concrete. Before concrete. And the, the issue is pouring concrete is expensive. You have to pay a lot of people. You have to, well, buy the concrete. You have to buy tunnel, uh, tunnel boring machines. You have, to, um, uh, you have to dig tunnels in the middle of a city. That's hard. Electronics, on the contrary, are cheap, which is what we see today with um, a lot of improvements in apps. So that side, U.S. transit agencies are doing okay. Um, so electronics in this context means signaling. The red line, uh, the, the red line's uh, um, capacity crunch is not a matter of track capacity. Track capacity on a normal um, subway is about uh, a train every two minutes, maybe a train every two and a half minutes. You can go lo- you can go below that. In Vancouver, the um, um, the peak frequency is a train every uh, minute 48, but that's with a driverless system, uh, with a very modern driverless system. Every two minutes, every two and a half minutes, that's vanilla that's been practiced for decades. The peak capacity, the peak frequency on the red line is a train every four minutes or four and a half minutes. And the reason is that their signaling system has very long blocks. It's an ancient signaling system uh, that could be uh, um, changed. It could be just scrapped and um, rebuilt as like moder- as a modern signaling system. Um, and that is normally orders of magnitude cheaper than um, than building a new subway in uh, in Paris. They're doing that. They're doing that. And they're uh, in fact automating their um, busiest lines uh, because um, they figured that spending a few tens of millions of euros on automating a line uh, has a payback time. It's not a it's not a huge ROI, but we're talking maybe uh, 10, 20 years of payback time on not having to pay train drivers. So what about commuter um, rail in this? I mean, it, you know, does commuter rail, like, uh, you talk about a number of things we can do um, for the, with the commuter rail. I mean, and one thing you talk about, fall electrification, which I don't think has ever gotten traction, um, and some other things. I, I was wondering if you want to talk about that. Yes. And you had, in the pile on to offer another topic there with commuter rail, you know, yeah, building on your assertion about not needing to pull more concrete for subways, you were really emphasizing, especially with regional rail, infill versus extension. So you can maybe address exactly. both of those topics. Sure. So commuter rail in the U.S. has a mentality, which is this is a shuttle. We are getting you as fast as uh, we think is possible, given schedule padding, from your par- from your suburban park and ride to the central business district. Um, you have and uh, actually I have an old post about that called commuter rail stop distribution. Um, I wasn't looking at the MBTA. I was looking at Chicago, which has a very extreme case of um, of that. That the trains maybe make, uh, I don't know, two stops in, tw- in 12 kilometers in Chicago, and then they drop to a stop every kilometer in the suburbs, um, which is not how, let's say, the, the Paris regional trains go. The Paris regional trains have pretty even space on. Um, 
and 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 uh, and the problem is, I mean, yes, the MBTA could build infill. In fact, it is building infill in the in the Olson Brighton. Um, but who the hell wants to ride that? I mean, you're only getting to uh, Back Bay and South Station. Um, the the frequency is shit. I mean, there. Um, I mean, I think uh, one of the plans, not for that, but for the Fairmount Line infill, which is a very good idea, the Fairmount Line infill, but they're planning on a train every 40 minutes. Who the hell wants to ride that? Mm-hmm. And and the fares are going to be, uh, and the fares are, um, I believe, still higher than the bus fares. Who the hell higher, wants to do Higher than that? bus, but equal to subway for the Fairmount Line. Yeah, except that you don't get oh, a transfer. Oh, right. I forgot that, the, that Boston doesn't have a uh, – that Boston charges more for the subway than for buses. Mm-hmm. But I think, the, I, think yeah. Alston, I think the Alston fares might still be um, Zone 1 and not Zone 1A, like higher than subway. I, I, I'm pretty sure that when that station comes online, it will be Zone 1A. Um, okay. But I think they're going to okay, be because... having to reevaluate some of their Zone 1A fares. But it, but it is, it's definitely sure. an issue. Ah, so so that's part. Of, so I mean, part of it is there's no. I mean, the you need to pay extra for a transfer, whereas for the subway it's free internally. Um, and uh, and in New York, by the way, the LIR does charge premium even within the city, uh, even like within the subway zone. And in um, and uh, and because of that, very few people ride these uh, infill stops because seriously, who the hell rides a train that comes every hour or something? I mean, I would love to see the uh, and, MBTA do like a pilot of, you know, of make of equalizing some of these fares, and you know, in some cases, we're spending so much more on running frequent bus service when really, you know, you yeah. could you could just get people on the commuter rail. Yeah, but you would need to, but you would need to get the frequency right because, I mean, for the for what the Fairmount for what for what the Fairmount line tries to be, I mean, if you're not running a train every fifteen minutes, you might as well not run the trains. Right, but even fifteen um, minutes is a big deal compared to. You know, I mean, fifteen yes, minutes would make it good enough. Whereas all the buses that are that are going all over to the orange lines, it's taking an hour. And it's, yeah, you know, it'd be worth it. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. But the problem with but with like every fifteen minutes, I mean, that gets into the issue of um, staffing again, of uh, of operating costs, and um, and also there's this mentality which is commuter rail is separate from urban transit. We're not trying to serve the same clientele. Like I, I've seen pushback when I. Um, when a bunch of us were discussing um, using the mainline, the Northeast Carter tracks to run some uh, local trains in uh, the Providence area, and we got pushback. Wait, what, what do you mean you're going to have a stop in Olneyville? I mean, these are not, this is not the clientele for commuter rail. Yeah. Um, and there's um, so so part of it is honestly is this, is this assumption that I mentioned like in my introduction. There's this assumption that commuter rail is a separate world. Commuter rail is to get you is is to get you from the suburbs to the CBD, and well, extensions mean building more branches to more suburbs. Um, you see this with South Coast, which is actually less suburbs and more uh, intercity, but they but they're trying to make them into suburbs like Fall River and New Bedford. Uh, and you see it with the Fitchburg Line extension, you see it with the uh, Wickford Junction. Um, and the problem is, even when the costs are reasonable per unit length, they're never going to be reasonable per rider. I mean, how many people are interested in getting from Wickford Junction to Boston or from Wickford Junction to Providence? I mean, very, very few. I mean, maybe, I mean, there are people who commute from like, the, from like, South County to um, Providence, but they don't live in Wickford Junction. I mean, Wickford Junction is in the middle of nowhere. I think you make a really good argument and, with emphasizing infill that with Boston's legacy infrastructure, 
there is a huge opportunity for improving our transit system through better use of um, commuter rail or to, to think of it better, um, you know, regional rail. We just really have to get it into a new paradigm of how yeah. we think about it. And I think that what, what yeah. you pointed out about the Green Line extension, that it could have been commuter rail, um, yeah. that, that really opened my eyes to, to even more, even though we've been talking about regional rail. One of the things I wanted to ask you about um, – well, there's two things. Uh, the first one was, since the Green Line extension is Green Line, and we've sometimes said, well, maybe it should have been Orange Line, and you brought up the idea of it being, you know, regional rail instead. Um, yeah. Will, will that introduce, will that, is that inviting capacity issues with it being Green Line on a Green Line Central subway that's already uh, at capacity when we talk about power? And may, maybe you would disagree, but when we talk about power issues that have to be overcome, that seems to be a huge uh, yeah. inhibitor to the capacity of the Green it's Line. A, it's a, so... I mean, the power issues seem kind of not that important um, from my vantage point because, I mean, they happen whenever you're building a subway and whenever you're electrifying a line, and usually these are not high costs. Um, so you, so there's, so it might be like a problem with like the electric, uh, with the electrical system, uh, that it costs far more than um, it should, or with uh, signals, which are also another issue with with Ryan with running frequent trains. <laughs> Where are you recording right now? Uh, I, uh, right, I'm, uh, I'm right next to Penn Station. I guess there's a diesel train coming in from, like, the, uh, from the Empire, uh, uh, from the Empire service. I'm sorry. Nice, nice. The, we love it. It's transit podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, there's, a, yeah, exactly, no, the, the horn blaring, by the way, is another problem of uh, regional rail. The trains are legally required to blare their horn at every grade crossing unless there are quad gates. Um, the result is either you're building quad gates, which are kind of expensive if you're in the middle of nowhere suburb, or your train uh, blares a horn every time it passes. How many people who live near the tracks, you know, right next to a station want a train that blares a horn uh, so loud that um, you guys can hear it when I'm standing probably 200 when we're on the phone and I'm standing 200 meters from the train yeah so, so I mean, you, were, I, you, you were talking I've about heard the these trains uh, from power, kilometers away you were talking about the power issues with the green line yeah so I don't think the power issues are that big a deal honestly um, and the capacity I mean it's reverse peak I mean the green line's capacity is between like the Back Bay area and downtown. I mean, if you're building an extension that goes north, that's that actually is better for um, load. It evens the load. It means that it, it gives you uh, um, it, it gives you a southbound uh, peak rather than just a northbound. Because I, so I've never actually taken the Green Line to um, to uh, to Lechmer, but. I presume, just by like the number of stations and the ridership, that Lechmere and Science Park are not the big capacity crunch. The capacity crunch is um, is under Bo- is under Boylston. I would say you're you're mostly yeah, correct in that th- presumption. Th- yeah, basically. I mean, yeah. Lechmere is a big transfer station, but it's not. I, I don't think anybody's been turned yeah. around Lechmere. Yeah. 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 So, so like basically, York, you're saying if if we can um, spend the money that's necessary yeah. to overcome the power issues. And we can run more trains, yeah. and we can run longer trains, and we shouldn't be too concerned about capacity becoming a pinch point on the Green Line extension. No, not on the Green Line extension. And the so the Green is kind of weird in that the um, it actually used to run more trains than it does today, but that was they were all um, done by site and they double berth 
Yeah. It's still double birth at, at Park Street. Well, the, at Park um, Street, but not in other places. It's yeah, only like at Park Street. The, all, the, all the platforms in the Central Subway, I believe all the platforms in the Central Subway, are long enough for four for car, if not even sometimes six car. Yeah, four yeah. car trains. Four yeah. car trains definitely on all four, the platforms, yeah. but they don't double uh, birth and they don't run four car trains. Yeah, so they, I mean, honestly, it's something that you have to double birth, and if you if you want full capacity, I mean, you can or, or you can lengthen the trains, but then um, you you need to lengthen all the platforms outside. I mean, what's the um, to the green line? I mean, should in terms of capacity, I mean, should we be looking at four car trains everywhere, and um, should we be looking at setting up a transfer station at Kenmore for the you know the surface trolleys to you know feed these really big you know should we upgrade to heavy rail? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think? So I so I kind of dislike making Kenmore into a forced transfer because you're introducing a transfer penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can lengthen the four, if you can lengthen the um, surface platforms to four car to four cars, that's the easiest. Other than that, double berth. Um, and the and honestly, I mean, um, commuter, better commuter rail would actually help. I mean, if you had mm-hmm. like trains coming from every, I don't know, 10 minutes, uh, making not just to stop at, like, uh, what is it, uh, all, uh, what is it, West Station, Newbridge Landing, I mean, you can, I mean, you can add, like, add more stops, like, add, like, commuter rail stops at, I don't know, at, uh, F- at, uh, Fennel and, uh, Brighton, and, um, see if you can, like, build platforms near BU, um, and suddenly you're going to have a lot of people taking things other than the green line. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to solve everything, but it's going to it's going to somewhat reduce the load. Yeah, and one of our biggest problems is that the that transit from the west really, really sucks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, and, and there's... Uh, and you can do... And, I mean, you can do stop consolidation, but that's mostly for making the trains faster, not for making them higher capacity. Um, you can make the trains... Uh, another thing that would possibly help is low floor trains so the the fact that you need to climb steps to get on a green line train um it slows down boarding a lot mm-hmm. um and generally the norm for light rail nowadays is full is 100 uh, low floor and it makes so it makes it feel roomier um it doesn't really improve in train capacity but uh it does let the trains uh, enter, uh, sorry, um, dwell station, dwell at stations less. So the train stays at the station less, and this allows you to have smaller gaps between trains. Like generally, the like one way of possibly thinking about um, uh, the minimum headway between trains is uh, the uh, is a is stopping distance plus dwell. Plus station clearing distance. So if you're shortening the dwell, you're actually letting your, the system take more trains. And of course, the white elephant, uh, which we won't get into now, but uh, fare collection, which uh, has to happen right. on board. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. The. Oh God. Yeah. No. The um, front door boarding. Oh God. That I forgot. <laughs> Why do you have to remind me? The no. That. So there's again there are norms of what's done on light rail, and in this case, the U.S. is actually not behind. Like the way the U.S. Um, collects fares on light rail is uh, well, not um, the not in uh, Boston or Philadelphia or uh, maybe San Francisco where it's where it's legacy systems, but all the new ones like San Diego, Portland, uh, Hudson Bergen light rail in Jersey, um, all of these have uh, have a sta- or, or Denver. There are standards for how to collect fares, which is 
you um, have barrier free access to uh, to the platform. You have ba- you have no barriers between the street and the platform level. Um, people can just walk on a train without paying. I mean, they have to. Pay. I mean, they should pay, but they can walk without paying. But there, con- but there are um, conductors who, uh, or not conductors, rather fare inspectors, who uh, check tickets at random. Like they board not every train. They board, however, whatever whatever percentage of the train um, uh, is required to make fare uh, to make fare evasion uh, not worth it. And um, you are, and then. Uh, and if they see it without a ticket, if they catch you without a ticket, they give you a fine. Right. Do, like, do you maybe know a hundred, how they're, like how the new, how they're doing fair uh, collection on the new light rail lines in Paris? Um, it's the same. The same and way. it's also like that, the, the same as what I just described. Okay. It's, this is how light rail generally works. Um, in Germany, it's even how subways work. They have barrier-free access. Uh, commuter rail, it depends. So, uh, in uh, Stockholm, they have fare gates. Like um, on the subway in Paris, the uh, RER lines, the commuter lines that run through, have fare gates. The ones, the, tra- the Transilien, the ones that don't run through, don't have fare gates. In in other in, in smaller in small European cities, generally they don't have fare gates. Um, but the problem is, in the US, there's this paranoia about fare dodgers. Like Vancouver, for example, had a fully barrier-free system. And then uh, there was paranoia about fare dodging, and um, uh, and you had Cubic uh, um, lobbying for fare gates. So eventually, Vancouver said, "Fuck it, we're um, introducing, we're going to build fare gates on SkyTrain. We're going to have a new smart card system for everything." Um, and uh, that uh, was supposed to be installed by the end of 2012. Um, it was like uh, two two and a half years behind schedule. And the cost of the fare gates ended up being uh, higher than expected, and it was such a disaster that people lost trust in the transit agency in the middle of a of a referendum campaign for a sales tax to fund the agency. So, because of that disaster of a uh, of replacing a working uh, proof of payment system, where uh, because people were um, because people were um, panicking over like a five percent fare evasion rate. Um, so in order to replace that with some, with a smart card thing, they ended up uh, they, they, the they ended up um, botching the operations in the middle of a transit referendum, which like failed by a huge margin. So now they have no idea where they're going to fund their next subway line. Mm-hmm. Well, you've heard it here. Canadians can also be paranoid about fare evasion. So I didn't. That's, that's a new it's, one for me. Uh, it's all over the English speaking world. Like uh, Brit, like in London, they have weird like. We just we just can't like, stand cheaters. It's just not in our Anglo. Um, exactly. <laughs> it's a it's a it's this idea of viewing uh, of viewing fair dodging as a moral offense against society rather than as a uh, rather than as lost revenue that you should try to recoup if the cost of recouping it is less than the um, yeah. uh, is less than what you would get. It's also like the libertarian um, fantasy world, right? Everybody's got to pay the exact same thing, and you know, and if, if not, we should, you know, go to every last length to, to get that one person. Yeah, yeah. It's so like I, I like I don't like so I don't I don't know whether it's the same as in like modern political libertarianism, but like certainly a lot. Like there was this whole um, there was this whole paranoia about theft um, about and like historic like in historic 
classical liberalism, like when you had um, when people were being hanged for um, theft in like the 18th, like early 19th centuries. And it's it's the same thing. I mean, you're treating it. I mean, and you're you're making everyone's experience miserable in order in order to be able to say that you that you don't have fair cheaters, but you do have fair cheaters. It's just less visible. And 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 I think this is one of the problems actually where right wing conservative reformers really missed the mark because um, essentially in urban areas they went on kind of the law and order platform, which may, which kind of commits them to these expensive. Um, to, to these expensive fare collection systems. I mean, commuter rail needs to just bag the conductors and go proof of payment. But you have, but you're not going to get proof of payment out of people who run on a platform of the other side is weak on crime. You're just not. Well, I think uh, before we launch into a, a philosophical discussion, philosophical discussion of the American penal system, we'll have to cut that short. Um, although I do always enjoy a discussion of classical political theory. Um, that being said, uh, in the interest of time, I think we'll have to cut this podcast sure. off. But Alan, or Alan, I hope that you will allow us to connect with you again in the future on, on podcasts. And maybe oh, we sure. can discuss more discrete, um, specific topics um, because it is so uh, yeah. easy to get in depth um, that it's difficult when we try to cover you know, more, than, more than a couple topics. So we, there's definitely more we can talk about. And hopefully we can, we can connect again in the near future and do another one of these. Uh, thank you. Do you have any uh, last questions before we get off? We have many questions, Alon, and I think what we'll have to do is, is yeah, we'll, I'll have to email you uh, offline and, and sure. schedule another time maybe in, in a couple months so we can do this again because, you know, we could go on and on. But I do want to make sure that uh, that the listeners get pointed to your, your blog, Pedestrian Observations, and, um, and it, you know, it's mostly accessible. I'll, I'll say that. You know, occasionally my eyes glaze over, but I always get the main themes, Alon, so I, I definitely appreciate yeah. the fact that you do make the effort to... Um, yep. to, to make those Thank main you. themes very accessible to people. And why don't you go ahead and, and give people your, your Twitter handle for those that want to follow. All right. So, um, my, uh, so my blog is um, pedestrianobservations.wordpress.com, uh, and my Twitter handle is alon underscore levy. Uh, alon is spelled A-L-O-N. Levy is spelled L-E-V-Y. Um and yeah, on uh, on Twitter, I um, tweet uh, whatever I see, which is sometimes transit and sometimes random political things. And on my blog, I just write about uh, transit and uh, urban issues. And uh, uh, Jeremy and, uh, and Mark Abunia, who's not on the podcast today, and, and some of the others of us uh, tweet or retweet at Transit Matters. Uh, yes, and I'm also at Critical Transit. And you can find me uh, at Hatchback Thirty One. And uh, thank you again for listening, and uh, follow us on, uh, go to transitmatters.info, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and email feedback at transitmatters.info, and subscribe, sign up to volunteer, because we can't do this alone, and become a member at transitmatters.info. I definitely encourage people to come to our come to the website and check out some of the new um, position statements that we've put out there about uh, many of the hot topics in uh, um Massachusetts, Eastern Massachusetts, Boston, MBTA uh, transit policy uh, that's happening right now. Great. Thank you very much, Alon. Have a great day. Uh, thank you both for having me.